Let's pray as we turn to God's word this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Would you stand? This is the second reading for today. This is the reading of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion, see your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. It was only after Jesus was glorified that they realized that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the world has gone after him. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You can be seated. So, um, mild confession this morning. Palm Sunday is not my favorite Sunday to preach. I love the donkey. I love the worship. I love the hosannas. I love the palms. I love the energy in here today. But it's kind of hard. Like Stephanie talked about, you're preaching on a narrative that's kind of hard to understand. Uh, Brilliant scholars have given their careers, their lives to this triumphal entry this journey into Jerusalem, this Palm Sunday, and yet they would even say there's still some mystery in how we're supposed to interpret these acts of Jesus. So who am I to try and clarify this for you this morning? Well, that's the reason why we're holding the procession until the end, right? So that we can have the hope of enough time and space to understand something about this narrative so that when we reenact it, we can really mean it and we can participate in it and be informed from the heart. But even more difficult, we have to hold the emotions, like this song beautifully did, of the whole week ahead. We're lauding Jesus as the king who enters into Jerusalem, the holy city. This is the coronation of a king. It's the messianic fulfillment of of scores of hopeful generations of people who have prayed for a Messiah. Meaning that this is some of the absolute highest worship that we have in our church calendar. And yet, we know what awaits Jesus in Jerusalem, don't we? It's not a throne. It's not a continuation of this high worship. It's instead, it's weeping. It's, it's Jesus cursing the fig tree. It's murder attempts. It's meetings in covert rooms. It's, it's betrayals from dear friends, and it's arrests, and it's floggings, and it's thorns, and it's blood, and it's a cross, and it's agony, and it's grief. So it feels really strange to worship with all this joy today, knowing what's coming, doesn't it? It almost cheapens the experience of Holy Week to be too joyful today. And as a pastor... I feel like I have to hold that tension because I want you more than anything to name Jesus as the king of your life. That's why I'm here on this earth, so that you might do that. But I also need you to feel the the somber emotions that are coming in the week ahead. So how do we appropriately celebrate this man, Jesus, who raises Lazarus from the dead, the one who rides into Jerusalem, the one who suffers and dies a criminal's death? How do we do that? Well, I think I found something this week, something kind of new to me that I think can tie this all together for us and put us exactly where God wants us to be on Palm Sunday. And that is the crowds. 
the crowd that gathered on Palm Sunday. Maybe you've wondered about that. I want to dive into that today. All throughout Lent, we've been looking for ways, invitations, uh, inroads, to how can we enter into these stories? Where are we in these narratives? Where are we invited in? And I think today we're invited into that crowd to go, where am I in that crowd? So that's where I want to focus my attention this morning. My goal is to give you a sense of the complexion of this crowd that's gathered on Palm Sunday. To illustrate that, um, I need to offer something very personal, buckle up for this one, um, that I've never preached on before. It's very vulnerable. I'm opening up a vein here. Here's my confession. I am a fan of a team called the Minnesota Timberwolves. Um, in fact, I'm probably the biggest, I, I am the biggest Timberwolves fan that you know. I'm confident of that. Um, I grew up in a basketball family, okay? So my mama watched the Masters today. I'm sure uh, maybe once in a while a football game was on, but it was pretty much all basketball all the time when I was a child. The first decade of my life uh, was in New England. I lived in Massachusetts. In um, my earliest memory, I kid you not, uh, I was three years old, was coming downstairs late at night to ask my dad if he could stop screaming at the TV during the Celtics-Lakers 1984 finals. And cool dad that he was, he let me stay up and watch with him. That was pretty cool, right? Um, my dad built a gravel basketball court in our backyard, and my brother and I would get in fistfights over who got to be Larry Bird when we were playing. Um, the Celtics were totally dominant in the 1980s when I lived there, five times in the finals, three championships. I still contend that the 86-87 team is the greatest team ever. Now, when my parents were 10 years old, or when I was 10 years old, my parents told us that we're moving halfway across the country to a city called Chicago. Now, if you're calculating in your brain, I'm 41 years old, that puts us here during the very first Bulls championship, 1991, in the Michael Jordan era Bulls. And those of you who were here in Chicago at that, at that time, you know how awesome the city of Chicago was during that. I mean, it was Bulls crazy, right? And I was, I was one of those as well. So now I wasn't playing in the backyard. I was playing in alleys on the north side of the city and fighting over who got to be Michael Jordan or my favorite player, B.J. Armstrong. That was my favorite. Um, then, in 1992, my parents announced that we're going to move again, and we're moving up north to St. Paul, Minnesota. Minnesota had just been awarded an NBA team, uh, expansion team, two years earlier called the Timberwolves, and I dove into Wolves fandom. This is legitimately the best picture I could find from 1991, by the way, if that gives you a sense of where I'm going. Um, I guess I assumed from my 12 illustrious years on this earth that every team that I would root for would be a championship-level team because that's all I'd ever known. Um, I was a little lukewarm on leaving Chicago and my friends here anyway, so my dad really wanted to make a good introduction, so he's like, we're going to buy Wolves tickets when we go up to the Twin Cities for the first time. I kid you not, in that game, Tony Campbell, in the last second, dribbled the, f the ball off his foot and fell over. They didn't even get a shot off. Um, that probably should have been a broad signifier that I should have kept my allegiance with the Bulls or the Celtics, but the Wolves were my team. Uh, the first year we lived there, they went 15 and 67 on the season, um, but I have stuck with them. I'm at my 30-year anniversary of being a Timberwolves fan, um, and I'm not being facetious that um, I tell, when I tell you that the, the Timberwolves are literally the worst. Literally, they're the worst. I, I did research this week of the four major sports men's sports in America, if you put them all together by winning percentage, the Timberwolves are literally the worst team possible. Um, and that's my team. That's my beloved Wolves. But I never write them off. My family can attest that I watch some or all of every single game that I can. Even when they're not competitive, I watch. Um, and this is why I can confidently say I'm the biggest Wolves fan that you know. Why do I share this horribly vulnerable information with you this morning? 
Well, because um, it's kind of an exciting year in my fandom because the Wolves are actually kind of good this year. It's pretty exciting. Uh, the Timberwolves have only been to the playoffs once since 2004. Um, but this year, my team is 10 games over 500. They have a chance on Tuesday night to go to the playoffs. It's going to be pretty crazy at my house. Um, and I think if they make it, they could, they could make some noise. So it's been a very gratifying year for me. Throughout the very worst of seasons, I've said to people, hey, when the Wolves are finally good, there aren't 10 people walking the earth that aren't on the team that are going to be more gratified than I am, and I believe that. So I would consider myself a diehard fan, obviously. There are very few of us diehards, especially those who have been there from the very beginning. But there's a really strange thing that's happened. Maybe it's happened to you, and if you've been a fan of a sports team too, um, the crowd has changed. And this is where I want to focus. The crowd has changed. All of a sudden, there are all these Wolves fans, right? Because they're good. Target Center's packed. I see Wolves jerseys. My sons wanted Wolves jerseys for Christmas this year. They haven't asked for those before. Um, <laughs> there is excitement around this team, which means that we have what we call bandwagon fans. Bandwagon fans. Maybe you're one of them. Bandwagon fans are those who were not there when things were, were really bad, when the Wolves were only winning 15 games a year, when the team stunk. They weren't there. They waited until the team was winning, and they jumped on the bandwagon. Kind of smart, actually. Um, and then there are also those who are, are so fatalistic, they're the naysayers who are like, even though things are good, they're like, something bad's going to happen. Someone's going to have a career injury. Something horrible's going to happen. They're going to find a way to lose. So I'm seeing this crowd change. Diehards like me, bandwagoners, naysayers. And this is where I want to make the connection. Jesus tells us basically that that's what the crowd was on Palm Sunday. I want to read the verses for you again. See if you can pick out these groups as you're going through this. Now the crowd that was with Jesus when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, they were there continuing to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign of Lazarus, they went out of the city to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the world has gone after him. Do you see these three distinct groups in this crowd? Let me walk through them. First of all, you have the diehards. These were the people who had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead in Bethany. Uh, the timeline does get a little bit disputed uh, from time to time, but most scholars do affirm that Lazarus was raised from the dead on Saturday, as in yesterday, the day before Palm Sunday, that that's when that happened. Um, our Orthodox brothers and sisters down the street on County Line, they actually had a service yesterday, which is Lazarus Saturday service, that they, they do that. Um, and they've, they've the Orthodox Church has done that for centuries. And I tend to agree with them because uh, the Lazarus narrative that in John notes that the crowds in Jerusalem were getting bigger as the, as the Passover was coming. And this is really important for us to tie these two things together because the raising of Lazarus is a huge, huge deal. It's the climax of these signs and wonders that John talks about in his gospel that we've been studying. The seventh sign, which so clearly points to the resurrection of Jesus to come in a week, right? And, and I'm aware that I could preach on the narrative of Lazarus for multiple weeks. In fact, I, I vow to you that we will do that after studying it this week. We're going to take like a month, one of these years, and do the Lazarus narrative. But for today, I want you to just imagine that you had been there in Bethany to see the raising of Lazarus. Imagine that. Here's Lazarus entombed for four days at that point, emerging from that cave, from that tomb, and, and having the grave clothes unwrapped from from his body and from his face. And I assume that once that happened, he started to give testimony and it would have gone something like this. Yeah, no, I really died. I, I was really super dead. And then Jesus 
called me back to life. I mean, if you witnessed that, if you were part of that crowd, wouldn't you be in? Wouldn't you be a diehard? Come on. Yes, you would. You'd be saying, well, I can't go back to my job now. What, what, what is that worth? I've got to drop everything I'm doing and follow this guy. And not only that, I've got to tell every single person that I see that this guy is the real deal. You would be a diehard. You would be invested, and you would be convinced, and you would be passionately following, which is what John says, actually, in verse 17 here. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, what did they do? They continued to spread the word. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they're all from this city of Bethany, which is only like a mile and a half away from the Mount of Olives uh, in Jerusalem. It's right over the eastern ridge. In fact, if you stand on the top of Mount Olives, you can see a little town. Uh, it's down in the West Bank in, in Palestine. It's called Al-Azariah. That's Bethany. And, and you can just imagine this fevered crowd on Sunday morning climbing up the ridge to the Mount of Olives going, the king's going into the holy city. You can imagine that happening. They were in. They had been with Jesus. They were already invested. And they were so excited to usher him into this holy city as their king. Their hearts were already worshiping God on Palm Sunday. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you identify with that. You go, man, I'm, 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 my heart is already primed for this. I am in. I am, I am, I'm convinced. I'm invested. I'm following. The second group in the crowd was the bandwagoners. Um, this might seem like a little bit of an uncharitable way to describe these people, but just hang with me here. Um, not unlike sports bandwagon fans, they've been drawn in not by previous investment. They've been drawn in by interest, curiosity. Verse 18, many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, raising Lazarus from the dead, they went out to meet him. Jesus' renown is, is growing in the area. They don't want to miss out. They want to see what the fuss is all about. They have not journeyed with Jesus from the beginning. They don't know much about him. They haven't witnessed what he's done. They haven't heard from him. But now they're intrigued by him. And this crowd of, of bandwagon followers can go one way or another, just like in any other way. Jesus, if, if he just ends up being just a guy, right, just a guy, if they're disappointed by him or they're inconvenienced by some of the things he says or does, then they're just going to hop off the bandwagon. They're going to go back to their normal life. But if Jesus ends up being the real deal, what everybody says he is, they might end up becoming diehards too, right? They might just stay on the bandwagon. They might become fervent followers of Jesus. I have to admit, as a Wolves fan, there's a knee-jerk reaction as a fan to bandwagoners that's not always warm, right? I get kind of old man pretty quickly on that. Like, they didn't watch these games. They haven't suffered like I have. But honestly, that's pretty petty, isn't it? I mean, it's great to have more fans invested in the team that you care about. My boys are getting more invested. They watch the games with me. They jumped on. And, and, and maybe this kind of season makes them fervent, diehard fans too. And I believe that the bandwagoners in Jerusalem had that same sort of opportunity, either to participate in a fad for a short amount of time and then just kind of hop off, or to convert to become diehard followers as well. And then the third group in the crowd is the naysayers. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but John tells us that the Pharisees were in the crowd and, and they had already made up their mind on Jesus. We know this from the, from the narratives of the Gospels. This guy's trouble. We need to tear this guy down. We need to discredit him. And we ultimately need to destroy him. Verse 19 says that. The Pharisees said to one another, See, this isn't getting us anywhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. These are those who are opposed, closed off, hostile to Jesus from the get-go. 
Now, part of the reason that I'm drawn to this, the makeup of this crowd on Palm Sunday is because the more that I think about it, the more I'm convinced that this is the makeup of basically every crowd that has ever gathered around Jesus since. Every church service, every Christian class that you've taken, every Christian book that you've ever read about Jesus, there's a crowd that's gathered around Jesus that has the same makeup. The amount of each of those groups might change based on the setting, but all three groups, I think, are there. There are diehards, there are bandwagoners, there are naysayers. And, and actually, I'm, true that th- I, I'm confident that that's true even of this gathering here today. In a few minutes, we're going to have the donkey come through. We're going to reenact Palm Sunday. And we're going to be in much the same situation as that crowd 2,000 years ago. We're going to be a mixed crowd. And we're going to be singing Hosanna. We often forget what Hosanna means, by the way. I want, you to, I want to make sure you know what it means. It's a combination of two Hebrew words, yasha and ana. Yasha means save or deliver, and ana means please. So what are we saying when we say Hosanna? We're saying, Jesus, please save us. Please save us. And this is part of what's confusing about this day. Because it's a mixed crowd, I believe that there were those who had come from Bethany, after seeing Lazarus raised from the dead, and they're, they're at the gate of Jerusalem, and they're going, yeah, Jesus, save us. You're the only one who can. Just like, just like we're saying, just like Lazarus, you brought us back to life. Jesus, save us. But then there are others, I think, who are saying Hosanna for very different reasons. They're saying, Lord, save us from Rome. Come as a warrior into this city like Joshua did or like Judas Maccabeus did, and destroy our enemies and and judge the evildoers and become the champion that we want you to be in our mind. This is why it's really important and honest for us to take a look and go, where are we in the crowd? And what does it mean for us to say Hosanna and to really mean it? Before we reenact this processional, I I just want to give a word to each of the different groups in the crowd today. Maybe you've already identified, here's where I am. To the diehards here today, first of all, it's so great that you're already committed to Jesus. That's wonderful. It's so great that you have seen him at work in your life and and, in the world around you and, and have responded to him in this way. That is the correct response. Let me be the very first person to cheer you on in that. Great choice. Here's my word to you, though. You still need to shout Hosanna. You still, even if you're a diehard, you still need to shout Hosanna. People who were already invested, committed, totally bought in, when they, saw, when they saw Jesus, they didn't shout, see, everybody, we were right, we got it, we got it right, see? Or even, thanks, Jesus, you're the best. What are they saying? They're saying, please, Jesus, save all of us. Save your people. Only you can save us. I've grown up in church my entire life. I've never really known a time before being a follower of Jesus. I never had a super significant time of rebellion or turning away from my faith. So this is a word for me as much as anybody else here today because the tendency of diehards like me is to rest comfortably in our salvation as if we only need saving once in our life and we're good to go, to look down on other people who are far off from Jesus as the ones who truly need to be saved and not really us, to assume that our fervor about Jesus is going to carry the day for us when things get hard. No, diehards need to keep shouting, please save us, Jesus. We need saving right now. I wish that they had kept shouting Hosanna throughout Holy Week. We learn that Jesus is betrayed by some of his most fervent diehards. One chooses money over devotion. 
11 others tuck tail and run while the king is given a cross instead of a throne. If you're following Jesus, if you're invested, if you're in, you need to continue to shout Hosanna. To the bandwagoners among us, Jesus is so glad that you're here, that you've come to see what this is all about. It doesn't matter that you haven't been a fully committed follower of Christ for years and years. It doesn't matter maybe that you haven't seen firsthand what happened to Lazarus at Bethany. What matters is that you're here right now and that Jesus, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is here with you and with all of us. And here's my word for you today. Yes, Jesus is the real deal. He's the real deal. You may not have firsthand experience of his miracles. Maybe he's disappointed you before. Maybe there are questions that persist for you that you just don't have adequate answers for. I want to tell you he's the real deal even in the midst of that. It's not a fad. It's not a creation of the religious fervor of the masses. Jesus is who he says he is. He heals and he restores and he resurrects and he liberates. He's the real king and he's coming to claim his crown. But hear also this as a bandwagoner. Following him is not easy, especially in a week like this week. The crown he receives is made of thorns. The throne that he takes is a cross. If you're really a bandwagon follower today, my prayer is that you might come to follow Jesus as king right now because he's the real deal and that you might stay on the wagon with him because beyond the pain and the trial and the loss is an eternal glory that nothing can take away and no one can deny. Third, a word to the naysayers. You're probably the group here that maybe isn't saying Hosanna. You're not open to the idea of Jesus. Maybe your mind's made up. Well, guess what? Jesus is also really glad you're here. We have absolutely no account of Jesus banishing or writing off the naysayers in his ministry. He engages with them with respect. He confronts them firmly and lovingly and continues to pursue them. So here's my word for you. Jesus came to earth for you too. He doesn't run from you. He runs toward you. His deep desire is that you might turn to him, be transformed, and come to know him as your king as well. Maybe you're here today in this crowd so that you can respond to him for the very first time and say, God, I want you to write a new story in my life. Nothing would give me more joy today. So where are you in the crowd today? Where are you? A diehard, a bandwagoner, a naysayer. Can you say Hosanna and truly mean it today? Here's a word for the whole crowd, and it's the abiding message of Palm Sunday. Jesus is not interested in fans. He wants nothing more and nothing less than to be the king of your life. What does it mean to have Jesus as the king of our life? It means that he rides on through the gates of our lives and he takes over. We stop living as if we're our own kings or queens, and instead we enthrone him. He becomes the leader and the wisdom and the guide and the source of all life for us. And we worship him as the one who is truly worthy. As we begin Holy Week, that's the invitation for the whole crowd, everybody gathered here today. Jesus says, I'll be your king, not a warrior king, not a king of political clout, but a king of love who sacrifices even unto death for that crowd on that day and this crowd here today. No more naysaying, no more hopping on and off the bandwagon. It's time to say Hosanna and to mean it. Please save us. Please be our king. Lord, save us. 
One last thing, my dad um, did take us down to the Bulls championship parade in Grant Park in 91. Was anybody there? Yeah, all right. I know my wife was there. We, had a, we were in the same place. It was amazing. We didn't know each other. Um, if you were there, I mean, I, here's what I remember from that victorious uh, parade that day. A whole lot of really weird people giving me high fives. That's, that's basically my memory. Um, I don't remember anybody coming up and asking me, hey, how long have you been a fan? Uh, how many games did you watch? Can you name all the players? It was just a crowd who knew who was victorious, right? I, I hope that someday in my lifetime I'll go up to Minneapolis and there'll be a parade down Nicollet Avenue in Minneapolis. You better believe I'll take that week off of work. Um, it's going to be an incredibly gratifying party if and when that happens after all the suffering I've endured. But let me tell you, I'm not going to care about anybody's history with the team, whether they were there from the beginning or not, whether they watched you know, anything more than the championship game. I'm giving every single person a high five in that, in that crowd, right? Because all that's going to matter is we're celebrating the champ. We're celebrating the victor. And that's just sports. I promise you. I know I've talked a lot about sports today. I know that sports don't really matter. They don't have eternal consequence. Even in my fervor, I know that. How much greater then is our gathering around King Jesus on this Palm Sunday this day? How much greater? How much more of a foretaste of heaven is this crowd even today? How much more shall the lordship of Jesus capture our hearts and inform our worship? It's the kingship of Jesus that leads the crowd to the level ground where we can worship him as king. And that's our invitation today. Hail Jesus as Savior and King. That's a foretaste of the heavenly glory. So Lord, would you help us this day to claim you as King? When we say, Hosanna, Lord, please save us. Maybe something that we mean from the depths of our hearts. Lord, we thank you for seeing the whole crowd, each and every one of us, and calling us to you. Would you give us a sense of our place in that crowd today and what it means for us to respond to you in fullness of heart, we ask in your name. Amen. I'll invite the band to come forward, and it is time for us to enjoy our processional here today. Um, the donkey's going to be coming through. Our kids are going to be leading the donkey through. If you have palms, you can feel free to wave them. Our kids have palms as well, and they'll be leading the donkey through. But I want you, as we sing this song, we're going to sing numerous times that word, Hosanna. And let me ask, is that something that we can say with fullness of heart this day? Please, Lord, save us. Let's sing together. You can stand.